0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. Wherever you are, whoever you are, crypto skeptic, half believer, or enthusiast, it's really great to have you tuning in to Crypto Unstacked, where we bring you a cup of crypto every week and unstack everything from finance to global macroeconomics this podcast assumes basic knowledge of crypto and aims to explore some more advanced topics about the crypto markets such as trading strategies lending and derivatives the crypto unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group. This week on Crypto Unstacked, we chat with Ling Tong co-founder and chief investment officer of Ledger Prime, a quantitative crypto hedge fund based in New York. In this episode, Shiliang and I cover Ledger Prime's view on the regulated and unregulated crypto derivative space, the future of the Bitcoin ETF, DeFi yield farming and broader DeFi risks, and the role and future of stablecoins. We cover all this and more. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hey Ling, big welcome to Crypto One Stacked. It's really great to have you join me on the pod.
1: Yeah, thank you, Leslie. You know, it was a pleasure to speak to you, and thanks again for inviting me on here.
0: Before we dive into Ledger Prime and all things crypto, it would be really great to have you chat about your background prior to crypto, and also about how you started Ledger Prime.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I took a slightly convoluted route to crypto and, and finance in general. My background is actually in, in chemical engineering and doing university at MIT. And four years of learning thermodynamics and in labs, I think made me realize quickly I Did not want to pursue that route, and back then this was prior to 2008 when finance was still extremely hot and extremely attractive in these large Wall Street firms. And so at the time they were all hiring quantitative individuals who were program, who understood math, who didn't necessarily understand finance. And so I interned and and got a full time offer at a quantitative desk at Merrill Lynch at the time. It was high frequency trading, options market making, and derivatives. So, you know quickly taught myself general markets got a CFA as a way to kind of boost my knowledge there went through that desk at Merrill and then proprietary training group at UBS doing you know something similar in the volatility space as well took a few years off afterwards uh, wanted to take a break from finance you know really wanted to you know start my own startup company as well and met a co-founder uh, who I knew from college and started this company called world cover essentially it was parametric insurance basically catastrophe insurance for developing world we basically so micro insurance to smallholder farmers in developing countries for that two to three year period, I was having to go to Ghana and Ghana and Kenya, et cetera, essentially you know, launching the operation there and selling these various you know, insurance to the various smallholder farmers you know, in the area. And While it was extremely fulfilling and, and extremely interesting, I think after a while, I kind of had, had the edge to go back to the financial markets and crypto was always something that I did been personally involved in starting around 2013 obviously working on a wall street desk any investment that kind of appreciate hundreds of percent in a year gets kind of passed along and people start talking about it at least on a personal basis i've been trading crypto since 2013 but it wasn't really until 2017 when things got a bit more mainstream and you know really front and center and i met the team at ledger holdings and ledger x and uh, they wanted me to essentially launch a crypto market making or private training firm for the holding company. And so really, it was it was right time, right place. It was kind of my you know entry back to the financial market, specifically crypto. Here we are with, with Ledger Prime.
0: Yeah, super interesting. I definitely want to touch on uh, your background as an entrepreneur later on in our conversation. First, just to kind of kick it off with Ledger Prime, you know, you guys launched in 2017, a year when the market saw, I think, almost 300 funds across. <laughs> (laughs) venture capital and hedge funds launch, right? And during that time, I imagine everyone thought it was a piece of cake to, you know, raise a couple million capital and then start investing across the crypto space. What was it like setting up a trading desk during the crypto bull market? And how did the fund perform during the crypto bear market that followed in 2018?
1: Well, we, we started relatively late, I would say, in, in 2017, right? We started in Q4. We'd already seen what had been happening earlier that year, and we've already seen the opportunities that were present. And so really, it was just move as fast as you could, right? To the mm-hmm. extent that you, you can in trading markets. It's not like a you know startup or necessarily in, in the traditional sense, we can you know move fast and, and break things, right? You can't really you know, afford to do that, but at least try to move fast you know, as, as quickly as you can. And, and so my team and I we came from the traditional background, right? So, as my CTO and I knew him you know, back at the Merrill Lynch days. We had all these strategies that we were running back then. We had all this infrastructure and, and ideas. And so we knew that this inefficient market could apply a lot of the same strategies to that. We didn't necessarily understand all these tokens and, and ICOs that were coming online and the story with the teams. And, and we weren't venture capital you know, investors, but we knew that we create, you know, a market neutral strategy by a lot of the traditional HFT like strategies. And so that's what we did in Q4. You know obviously we were maybe at a slight disadvantage in the sense that, you know, we're operating within the US, we were pretty close to regulators, we couldn't necessarily take advantage of kind of the global opportunity that at the time was existence in crypto, but back then things were extremely inefficient. So even sitting in the US, you could take advantage of it. To a certain extent, I think that all of that saved us in 2018 as well in the bear market where everyone or a large part of the crypto investment world was, you know, extremely long and, and obviously it was a extremely grueling and a long bear market. But, you know, us as, as a market neutral fund without necessarily directional exposure, we dipped very well in 2017 obviously and fairly well in 2018 as well. And that actually allowed us to build the track record that we needed to, you know, set up a proper, you know, hedge fund at the uh, end of 2018 and actually raise outside capital, outside of uh, our holding company. You know, we've continued to adopt the same mentality of market neutral strategies, not necessarily exposing ourselves to the whims and volatility of, of this market. And to a certain extent, the markets are still, pockets of it are still as inefficient as they were back a couple of years ago.
0: Did you launch with an investment thesis?
1: I mean, I think our investment thesis was that this is an extremely nascent um, and volatile asset class, inefficient. It will take many years. Before traditional, very very smart money would get into the space, while the space wasn't extremely scalable in the sense that you can't deploy hundred million plus in a market neutral HFT like strategy, the, the ROI was going to be extremely high. You know, deploying these these strategies that you know could take advantage of this this lack of infrastructure or last of traditional you know institutional smart money for at least the next few years, and, and so that was our mentality at least.
0: Right, right. So no bias towards I guess certain coins whether it be Bitcoin or Ethereum or, you know, other types of altcoins?
1: Yeah, I would say our, our um, instead of biased towards a certain sector or coin, we were extremely biased towards derivatives, right? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily just because that was our background, but really just looking at traditional assets and seeing that the derivatives markets generally are, you know, 30, 50 or 100x the size of spot markets. We knew that if, if crypto was going to stay and be another asset class, um, that it would follow a similar path. And so we made a conscious decision back then, even when derivatives weren't necessarily as large as they were now, to really just focus on that and and options and try to grow the space there.
0: Right. Yeah. Actually, your, your point there about your conviction in the derivatives market makes me think back to the episode that I had with Skew, right, who focuses a lot on crypto derivatives data. Um, And, you know, yep. they saw the growing spot market, but the crypto derivatives market was really where they saw the opportunity for maturation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, given your background and career trading the derivatives market, what's your take on the current landscape? And could you talk about some of the differences that you see between the offshore Offshore venues and the onshore venues, and how you know regulation onshore over venues such as the CME or LedgerX has actually changed the way that the market structure has evolved over the years.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great you know, area to dive into. So unregulated futures and, and derivatives in general, they make up an average, any given day, probably more than 90% of, of the market share right? So you know, for options, even you know, up until the last month or last couple of months, because the CME option has actually gotten you know, decent traction, now unregulated options have generally on average made up 95% plus of a, of a global crypto market share. Now while like regulated exchanges have doubled their market share in the past year, and while there's probably you know still a decent amount of suspect volume. On on unregulated exchanges, washing or whatever it may be, overwhelmingly the, the vast majority of the volume in, in global capital does flow through you know, unregulated exchanges, right? And so, Bitcoin being this fungible global asset, take all of these derivatives products that sit on top of Bitcoin. You know, in general, the prices of these derivatives products are going to be overwhelmingly you know, shaped by the supply of capital that trade through these unregulated entities. You know, and, and I say currently because I don't necessarily expect this to last, right? And I'll touch this a little bit later on, but perhaps why the, there's you know, such a large difference in volume, one is it's a lot easier to get set up and start trading on unregulated or at least offshore you know, entities, especially from the KYC, AML perspective, right? Crypto trading is still heavily dominated by retail and you know some of these smaller prop trading firms. It's, it's also a global asset and the vast majority of volume, but as I said earlier, really comes from the outside of the US. You know, let's say you want to trade on the CME or back, right? And you're a professional and you want to algo trade and, and access these markets directly. One, you, you basically need a direct relationship with the futures, you know, uh, as Right, which is you know pretty cumbersome process. Um, basically rules out smaller funds, makes them you know pretty much impossible for retail traders. Right, uh, you can access it perhaps if you retail through a brokerage house like a Schwab or TD Ameritrade. Um, but you know sometimes that is pretty difficult for foreign investors. Um, retail investors. And so really effectively you've cut off kind of two of the largest segments of crypto trading pie already, non-US investors and, and retail and smaller funds and, and trading groups. And on top of that, while some of the regulator products enable margin, maybe around the 40% mark, you know, these FCMs and brokerages will apply an additional margin on top that sometimes we effectively make the collateral requirements more than 100%. And so as a result, dive a little bit deeper and you look at the pricing of these products, let's say just call option on Derivate or OKEx, which are Two offshore entities versus Ledger X and, and CME, DARPA you're posting maybe 10% collateral. Whereas on CME or, or Ledger X, depending on your FCM relationships, you know, the sale will make a call option to cost you 100% or even more margin, right? Now, regardless of whether you think that's actually good or, or bad in terms of the collateral that's needed, the, the cost of capital is going to be orders of magnitude higher, right? And so, you know, market makers, you know, they're not stupid. They're going to price it in. And so, really, you're, to buy these options, you're going to be paying orders of magnitude higher prices, frankly, wider spreads as well, right? You know, you you expect spreads that are maybe 50 to 100 percent more on some of these exchanges versus you know the offshore counterparts, and really especially for the low premium options because it's just really not extremely you know, capital efficient for a short seller to lock up that much capital for that little premium or yield, right? So that's just one example. We can go into the futures markets and it's the same deal. So a lot of it is just cost of capital you know, as a result of these regulatory barriers,
0: right? And the name of the game trading, to my understanding, is finding opportunities that enable capital efficient. Efficiency. Everyone has one balance sheet to work off of. Yeah. And it's a matter of how you can allocate funds in the most efficient way across the different venues that you're trading on. And I think derivatives makes it much more efficient for Traders to be able to express their views much more than the spot markets at least. So why the focus then on the CME? I mean, you had mentioned that, Mm -hmm. you know, you have really a high cost of capital trading there. You have about 35% margin requirement, right? So you need a lot of collateral to be trading there. Why, Why be a market maker on the CME?
1: Yeah, I mean we're, we're market makers everywhere, both onshore and, and offshore. But when we're we're taking a, a longer view, we're we're still generally quite positive on you know many of the regulated you know entities like LedgerX and CM. As a large U.S. institutional money flows into the space they're going to need to use regulated exchanges, not necessarily because they don't care about cost of capital or they don't trust some of the offshore you know, entities, but a lot of times it's just dictated by US regulations, right? And so you can take an example of what's been happening on the CME, both in the futures and options market in the past couple of months. Up until, I would say, April-ish or May, CME options really hadn't seen much traction. But in a few days and you know, subsequent weeks, um there have been days where the CME options market share has made up you know 20 or, or more percent of the you know crypto options volume right and the CME futures uh, market has grown healthily as well what's been happening in the, you know in the background is there's been a new Multi-billion-dollar asset manager, and without kind of uh, you know doxing this firm, has gotten into the space. They've started to uh, create these these kind of uh, variants harvesting products using options uh, on Bitcoin. With a balance sheet, they've you know, managed to create a, a sizable volume, which actually has started to leak onto some of the uh, offshore you know markets as well, such as you know, such as there The point I'm making is, if one of these large multi-billion asset managers, you know, from the traditional world, get into the space can have such a large impact on the crypto derivatives markets already. You know, just imagine one, five or, or 10 of these firms get into the space and the only venue they can use is you know, a, a regulated entity on the US, right? We really truly believe in, in the growth of the space and the traditional institution money will come and they'll only be able to use regulated entities. You know, you, you kind of have to be the patient, you know, and, and wait for when that money actually arrives, right? Whether that's six months or a year or two years, I, I don't know how many more of these, you know, large firms are getting like, like this individual firm did the past couple of months, but you can bet that you know they're only probably going to be trading on these regulated entities
0: mm-hmm. yeah you had mentioned uh structured products and how you know large institutional investor is finding ways to be able to patch that up and, and sell those on to clients i mean i think mostly in the space right now we're seeing a lot of uh, volumes for vanilla options you can have you know speculators buying calls uh, miners buying puts coin holders selling covered calls uh, if they're willing to sell Bitcoin into fiat as the market goes up or the other way around. USD rich investors who are really bullish on Bitcoin to be in the market and kind of buy at more depressed prices, right? And then these are all very much straightforward vanilla options that we're used to seeing. But on the structured product side, there's definitely interest, but I'm just not sure like how much Volume is actually being pushed through the door uh, when it comes to these more exotic products. Have you seen pickup in interest on your desk uh, for those types of products? What are your, your thoughts on the growth of this you know, sub-sector within the options space?
1: Yeah, I think there's definitely been a lot more interest and it's certainly picked up. I would say actually, especially offshore and, and out in Asia, given the regulations in the US, it's a bit tough to create these and, and trade them on regulated exchanges or especially in the OTC markets. But certainly I think in the OTC markets offshore that there's been more demand, especially from perhaps some of the lending desks, you know, who are taking on a lot of you know collateral uh, in exchange for their cash, Bitcoin. And so with this large Bitcoin inventory, or Ethereum inventory, they can create some of the you know structured products such as you know double no touch options or just generally downside or upside so yield harvesting instruments. And these structured products have been immensely popular in traditional assets, especially on Asia and Hong Kong. And so a lot of the investors, high net worth investors or, or institutions out there have seen these products before. And so they're very comfortable with these products you know, already, whereas on the US side, perhaps less so. And so we have seen a pickup in demand. And I think that's actually skewed some of the markets in, in- actions, especially recently, given Bitcoin and, and some of the large caps have. Have moved nearly as much. If you look at the implied vol markets, volatility severely depressed. A lot of the wings and the options, typically where you will find you know some of these products selling options to generate yield, they've really pressed the the vol, implied vol's uh, of these wings you know, on the option surface. It's actually had a, a pretty large effect on the general crypto options market, you know, especially during a quiet period like this for Bitcoin.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you say quiet period because it seems like on the altcoin side of things, it's all the rage, right, Uh, given what's happening in DeFi as well. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. You know, what are some other types of macro trends you've seen over this past year? We touched a bit about the growth in options, especially on regulated exchanges like the CME. Are there other notable trends that perhaps you didn't expect coming into this year?
1: Yeah, I would say at least in crypto, I would divide this year in, into two sections. Obviously, pre you know March twelfth and after March twelfth, because right? I think the markets have behaved a bit differently you know before and after obviously before things were a bit normal while the markets kind of were a bit slow to, to catch up to what was happening on the COVID front it was a pretty kind of March um, time frame it was generally risk on the large caps in, in crypto were, were you know performing extremely well and healthily. yeah some of the smaller caps like DeFi etc were doing well as well but in, in general it was almost like a repeat of beginning of, of you know, 2019 middle of 2019 yeah. but then after the subsequent kind of crash in in global markets and especially crypto, you know, a lot of these large caps haven't nearly performed, you know, as well, you know, relative to some of the smaller mid-caps. And I think really things kind of took off for the DeFi space, um, obviously, when when Compound launched their governance token. And I would say ever since, you know, that's been kind of the the main focus for a lot of investors, you know, since then. And if you look at like the top 10 by market cap in crypto, a lot of these tokens really, you know, layer one protocol tokens really haven't come out with anything, you know, innovative. In the past few months or, or even years, and you have all these DeFi tokens that are in, outside of the top 25 or 50, people are actually using these products and they're kind of surging up, up the rankings. That's been the main macro trend, especially recently.
0: Mm-hmm. And have you been asked by clients in Asia about things that are going on in the US and from clients in the US about things that are going on in Asia? Do you have to sort of paint the picture about what's going on in both sides of the world?
1: Yeah, I think in general the markets, in terms of volume and everything, it's still dominated by offshore volume and traders and investors. But obviously, the U.S. is the elephant in the room. It's the behemoth. You know, everything in terms of what it does, in terms of regulations and everything, will obviously have have huge impact on the general space. And so, when I'm talking to clients and individual funds in Asia, it's always in the back of their mind, at least from a longer term perspective. But yeah, I mean, on a day-to-day perspective, I think the volume and activities so dominated in the offshore world.
0: You know, talking about the long term and what will bring more adoption of crypto, I guess specifically Bitcoin to start, something that you and I are both very interested in is the Bitcoin ETF mm-hmm. narrative you know, with the recent changing of the guard in the SEC, we've yet to see who will actually fill the place of Jay Clayton, Mm -hmm. uh, who's a well-known crypto skeptic. Mm -hmm. And during his tenure oversaw all the applications for the Bitcoin ETF. And it, it seems like the crypto space is quite hopeful that someone would step into that position who is more of a crypto bull and who's willing to give this Bitcoin ETF a try. And so I'm just kind of curious, you know, what are your thoughts on the chances of a Bitcoin ETF launching and whether this ETF would actually impact the demand that, uh, for example, Grayscale's Bitcoin investment trusts will have over the coming year
1: yeah i mean i completely agree i think we all know that you know jay clinton has been the friendliest sheriff towards crypto and just based on his comments and the fact that he works with the trump administration is, is close to trump and, and trump officials obviously being not that friendly towards crypto as well and just the fact that his agents have repeatedly rejected uh, crypto etf applications i suppose you can make the case that if you were to become the attorney for, you know for the southern district in new york that it's actually a positive development, uh, at least for the ETF front and perhaps crypto as well broadly. And mm-hmm. so I think there is actually you know extremely big implications, right? If one, let's say Trump is nominated out of office or they, they place a new SEC head friendlier towards crypto, then the probability of a Bitcoin ETF will go up you know, substantially, right? I think a lot of the popularity that we've seen in GBTC and ETH, these, these gray products and why the premium has been so high in products is due to the fact that there is no Bitcoin ETF or Ethereum ETF. And so this is the only vehicle for retail to kind of get into the space other than directly own the Bitcoin Ethereum. And so if the ETF gets introduced, it will make it perhaps easier. And really, better in terms of product design than some of the Graysdale products. So, I think the premium actually will probably come down significantly, maybe not directly, you know, immediately back to zero, but it certainly should come down a lot. I mean, you can just buy the ETF at Nav. And so, I think this, this will have huge implications, right? Because the Graysdale products, I think, are immensely popular for a lot of high net worth individuals and institutions in terms of just taking advantage of that premium and
0: arbitrage. So, before we move on to the next topic, let's take a quick break and hear a few words about. Amber Group. This episode of the Crypto Unstacked podcast is presented by Amber Group. Amber Group is a fully integrated crypto finance platform offering a suite of secondary market services across trading, wealth management, and financing solutions. We are backed by some amazing investors such as Paradigm and Pantera and work with clients and partners all over the world. Head on over to ambergroup.io to learn more about us. That's A M. B-E-R-G-R-O-U-P dot I-O. Ling, previously you founded a company called World Cover, which was backed by Y Combinator. And from the website, the company's mission is to help farmers and agribusinesses reduce climate risk. Could you share more about the World Cover backstory for us?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I co-founded WorldCover Cover back in 2015. My co-founder and I have known each other since university. Great friends. We went through finance and quantitative finance through the years in New York. Both of us were at a point of our lives. Where you know we hadn't started a family, it was kind of now or never and in terms of starting something on our own. We wanted to do something that perhaps was away from just the numbers and, and markets and our Bloomberg terminals and, and have maybe a broader impact you know, on the world. And so at the time we've been following Muhammad Yunus and microloans, microcredits, you know, obviously really been taking off and continues to do so. And we noticed that there was a lack of micro insurance specifically, and we actually were put in touch with a professor at Yale who had done a lot of research and studying to microinsurance and microinsurance specifically in, in the agricultural sector. And so having gone through this research and spoken to him, we discovered that this you know, potentially could be an interesting area and an opportunity. So, so going into this research a bit, you know, he had done a lot of research in rural Ghana, specifically with, you know, maize farmers, sorghum farmers. And basically what he discovered was that, you know, a lot of these smallholder farmers weren't capital constrained, but really they were risk- And what I mean by that is, you know, his experiment essentially gave a group of farmers capital, you know, let's say $100, and another group of farmers insurance policies, right, to protect the crops. And what he discovered was that the farmers who received the cash found insurance, mostly just save that as a rainy day fund. Whereas farmers who received insurance, you know, actually invested more into the farms and felt safer and more comfortable to take greater risk in terms of investing into the farms. And as a result, often their outputs increased as well. With their increased outputs, they will be able to save and, and in subsequent years, you know, increase the output further, right? That was kind of a novel discovery at the time. We took that and created a product of microinsurance to make it low cost because obviously it'd impossible to assess the damages individually. Like in traditional insurance in the field across you know millions of farmers across Africa. We chose Africa at the time because that was the largest pain point for them. But we basically packaged it with you know satellite data and remote sensing, along with mobile money and then mobile phones, because the mobile phone penetration is extremely high across Africa. And everyone uses mobile money or as their kind of mobile savings bank account. So we created these products that sat on top of this technology, which really made it low cost, cost effective and instantaneous, really, because you know, when it Disaster hits, they need to get the, the money and the funds immediately. And so we created these microinsurance products, packaged it, and connected it really with global capital pools, right? So these are reinsurance firms or asset managers that wanted this uncorrelated exposure to this asset class that obviously, you know, rain in Western Ghana uh, wasn't going to be correlated to the SP 500, right? So a lot of these asset managers and pools of capital were extremely interested in this. That was product market fit, right? So, and the company is still going on. I'm still an advisor. I was a CEO for three years. Learned a lot, went to you know numerous communities uh, across Africa, but I think you know after a while it just took its toll on me in terms of the travel and also just having to deal with you know regulators. Uh, obviously, given that it's an extremely you know regulated product and insurance, I think it was overall a, a, a great experience. And you I kind of wish that we were able to kind of tie in uh, the developments in, in crypto recently.
0: I was just about to ask, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> You know, perhaps in like stable coins and just these cross-border transactions, like it would have made things a lot easier, actually, with this knowledge and technology now versus back in 2015
0: or 2016. Right. Yeah. 2015. Oof, that was when Bitcoin was in the $200 range, I remember. Um, Yeah, what a time. So that's super interesting. Parametric insurance then covers the probability of a catastrophe happening versus like a typical insurance, which which only covers you know once something happens.
1: Yep. So traditionally, indemnity insurance it's kind of where you assess the losses. It only makes sense from a cost perspective if the value of your insurance is extremely high, so you can charge a higher premium. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for that. For with with you know micro insurance, that the you know what you're actually covering is probably only a few hundred dollars worth of produce, you know products and so the cost is to be extremely low right it needs to be dollars and so with that kind of cost structure uh it would be impossible to deploy a traditional insurance model and really what parametric insurance does is yes there's going to be basis risk in the sense that it's not going to be 100 percent coverage when suppose let's say a disaster strikes or there is no disaster but yes exactly as you said it's basically a probability based on historical data combined with life sensing from satellites and on ground you know remote sensing tools to predict when a disaster actually hits and then make a payout based on behavior that's remotely observed
0: super fascinating and do you have a class of farmers that you've studied you know over the past couple of years that have seen a dramatic difference in the success of their business kind of going back to what you're talking about earlier as a result of having this type of micro insurance
1: yeah i mean we've been in ghana for going on five years now especially in in the upper east and and upper west regions we've um, established a pretty large footprint in ghana over the years and certainly we've started to introduce as a result other products as well right so so we started with microinsurance and then we, we combined that over the time with credit because they still need credit for you know, pre-season buying of, of tractors or, or seeds and, and tools. And so really, you know, while we started with microinsurance, as we built up the trust, as we built up the communities over the time, we started to introduce a lot more of these other financial products to these communities and really have you know, helped them lift lead these communities up from perhaps necessarily say poverty, but hopefully have made the businesses you know, a lot more profitable.
0: Right. Yeah. Very, very cool. You know, speaking of agriculture and farming, DeFi has been the talk of town lately. And the term yield farming mm-hmm. has been memed into existence by crypto Twitter. You know, everyone is scratching their heads about the craze around yield farming, wondering just where all the yields are coming from. And I know this is something that you think about. And I'm sure other people have asked you as well. So let's start off with the most obvious question here Where does the yield come from?
1: <laughs> from a variety of venues. It's funny because, like, Liquidity mining is not necessarily even that. Well, all of this space is new, but it's not necessarily that new, right? I I don't know if people ever remember like Fcoin back in the day. That, to a certain extent, was almost like the first, right? I mean, it basically rewarded people for making trades on the exchange back in 2018. Or, or even like synthetics back in 2019, where they rewarded SNX tokens to users who helped add liquidity to the CTH, ETH pool on Uniswap. A lot of it is basically just either transfer of value from the future or from early stage investors and equity holders to groups of Traders or individuals who are essentially using the product or providing liquidity on these platforms as a way to incentivize more activity, more trading. Because at the end of the day, it's liquidity begets liquidity. It's chicken and the egg. You need more liquidity for people to use it. But you know how do you bootstrap that initial liquidity? I mean, I love DeFi in the sense that I think back in 2017 with the ICO boom, the space had the mentality well, give me money and I'll maybe create a product in the future that people might use and might mm-hmm. find useful mm-hmm. to now where it's or user product and as a result of using our product, will actually allow you to participate in the success and it will actually, you know, you actually see a return on on your end capital. And so while there's yeah, certainly still perverse incentives in the space, maybe in DeFi, I think this is a healthier mentality and certainly a, a larger use case than perhaps some of the you know, ICO tokens we saw back in the day.
0: Do you think it's risky that the primary use case of DeFi right now is centered around leveraged trading?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's many risks. Leverage certainly is is one of them. Um, to the fact that you, you're seeing leverage break down on, on established centralized platforms like BigMex and, and some of these other exchanges, mm-hmm. um, the fact that there's perhaps leverage deployed on DeFi protocols and and platforms should scare everyone. We already have seen this breakdown in Maker and back in March. I think we'll see many more like that during volatile times. Yeah, I mean, I think it's extremely scary. I think it's, to a certain extent, holding back a lot of the larger pools of capital. While there's a great opportunity, they're holding back on participating in this space, not only because of the leverage, but also just either the hack, with gamification that's available or the general lack of insurance in the space. So I think leverage is definitely something that could continue to, to present an issue for the space in DeFi.
0: Right. And is a fund like Ledger Prime able to touch DeFi given the regulated status? Or are, are you just interested from a PA level trading with your own capital? Yeah,
1: I think definitely from a regulator perspective, it presents challenges. We do dabble in it a, a little bit. Given our background in market making and just understanding liquidity provisioning, I think it's a great skill set for, for these markets because that's essentially what users are incentivized to do, right? And the opportunity, the ROI at least, is extremely large, upwards of 100% or more on markets, such as Uniswap. Obviously, not very scalable in the sense that you can't deploy tens or hundreds of millions, you know, perhaps, of capital and be able to sustainably generate that kind of ROI over the long term, even though that kind of capital is obviously deploying a compound and elsewhere. I don't think we expect it to last you know, for four years. But yeah, I, I think the opportunity is, is extremely attractive. If you have a few hundred thousand or, or low millions to kind of deploy, and you can get extremely high ROI on it.
0: Yeah, I guess it's all about risk, reward, trade-off, um, yep. and your tolerance for risk as, as a trader, right? And market exactly. participant more broadly, yeah. And another question is the increasing role of Tether in DeFi. More and more platforms like Aave, for example, will start to accept Tether as collateral. Do you think it's sort of just doubling on the risk if these platforms do accept Tether more broadly? Does Brock Pierce's run for presidency increase the scrutiny even further? What's your general thought there?
1: <laughs> yeah, certainly we've all had our conspiracy theories on Tether um over the years. I think Tether hasn't necessarily done itself any favors in, in terms of what it's done in the past or its lack of transparency. Generally Tether has done a lot of positive for the space and I think a lot of that is a direct result of introducing a, a stable coin being the father and, and giving birth to kind of the stable coin movement and subsequently we're seeing you know all these other stable coins taking off. My belief is that stable coins have acted as the bridge to connect you know, a lot of the, the day-to-day you know, retail and, and average individuals in the world to the crypto world right and i think it's that's done a lot of good in terms of adoption and use cases for crypto and and just a general broader world as well in terms of cross-border transactions import export businesses so so overall quite positive on on tether i think yes it might introduce some regulatory scrutiny and and risks i think it's overall a positive for the space
0: yeah, I think I'm aligned with you there, at least here in Asia. It's all what anyone trades, uh, stablecoin-wise, and you know trades and uses, of course. Their monopoly, I'd say, as a stablecoin remains. Talking about DeFi, I know Ledger Prime is participating in a more active way and uh, trying to bridge the institutional and perhaps retail participation in DeFi via something called the Chicago DeFi Alliance, uh, which includes many other firms as well, and you guys. Were the newest member to be included into this alliance? What do you look forward to learning as one of its members, and why join this alliance in the first place?
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think the way it was marketed or presented, maybe publicly, is that you know this is a great way for these protocols and projects to learn about the traditional markets and and get connected to traditional firms, traditional poise of capital. It was set up as an advisory business. But but really, I think what is going to happen is the traditional firms and, and traditional managers like ourselves are going to learn a, a tremendous amount from just working with these projects, right? I think at the end of the day, we're not experts you know, in this space. We're not crypto native you know, managers, a lot of us don't necessarily completely understand the code and, and what exactly is, is going on under the hood, but informing this group and being connected to uh, these projects, I think, you know, what we can offer obviously is our expertise in quality provisioning and, and whatnot, but really it's, it's actually, I, I think at least, a way for many of us to learn more about the space, keep our eye on the space, knowing that it could one day really take off and be institutional. And so being connected with these firms early on, I think hopefully will yield a lot of dividends down the space for for firms like us.
0: Excellent. Liang, it's always fun hearing about my guest's contrarian take on the space. What important truth about the crypto space do you believe that few might agree with you on?
1: Hmm. Um. Yeah, that's, you know, that's a great question. I think we touched a little bit about, and maybe it's not important. Truth, it's just something that is controversial. Basics, you know, tether and, and stable coins in general. I think have done not a lot of good for the space. I think something else, maybe more pertinent, is uh, kind of tying all of this discussion together. Is you know you can't dodge regulation forever, right? And if you look at the SEC having eventually caught up with ICOs from 2017, maybe a year to two years later after the boom. You know, I think DeFi would probably experience the same similar event even faster. I think the SEC has, CFTC has already signaled that they don't like synthetic off sim swaps, which DeFi to a certain extent are. And while the rest of the world and the offshore might not necessarily care at the end of the day, I do think that there are going to be projects or investors who will come under the scrutiny of you know, the US regulatory agencies who have been participating you know, in DeFi and will probably likely see similar enforcement actions and fines come down. On these groups. Mm-hmm.
0: And as always, I like to end our time together with a quick round of rapid fire. Are you ready? Yeah. If you had to choose, which would you rather be? A Bitcoin maximalist or an Ethereum diehard?
1: <laughs> um, I, I don't like being a maximalist for, for anything, but uh, <laughs> I'm probably closer to a Bitcoin maximalist.
0: Cool. We've crossed the half year mark now. What is something in the crypto space that doesn't yet exist that you think we'll see in the next six to 12 months?
1: I think we'll see a stable coin that's not tethered to the US dollar, but maybe an offshore currency. But more broadly, I think we might see more traditional asset-like products that mimic you know, sector ETFs. Um, I think FTX has done a great job of introducing some of this already, but I think there's a great need for especially for hedging purposes for portfolio managers of some of these products. And I actually do think they will get introduced either by exchanges or, or other entities of of kind of like sector etfs like products in crypto so you can have like a defi a note or, or token or something like that that you know enables institutional investors to hedge a portfolio or gain exposure to
0: it hmm, that's actually one i never heard before yeah very interesting new york's been going through some tough times what's a favorite restaurant of yours that you plan on going to as soon as restrictions start to loosen up again <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's that's great. Um, you know, I, I love the West Village. I love the feel of it, the energy of it. The restaurant I've been going to for many, many years now. Food I like there is pretty simple, but you know, I, I love Manila Tavern. Love the burgers there. So you know, once that opens up, I'll probably find myself there. A lot of you know, great memories with friends there.
0: Nice, nice to all of our listeners. Pin that on your Yelp. Look it up <laughs> and head over. <laughs> Ling, how can our listeners get in touch with you and learn more about Ledger Prime?
1: Yeah, I mean, you can definitely find us on our website, uh, ledgerprime.com. Always interested you know, speaking and, and meeting with like-minded individuals who have you know, interesting ideas, strategies, research. We love to provide an environment for them to test it out and, and work with us you know, hand in hand. So absolutely find us on our website and, and reach out to us anytime.
0: Great. Shiliang, thanks so much for coming on the Crypto Unstacked podcast and hope to have you on again very, very soon.
1: Yep. Thanks so much.
0: As always, hope you enjoyed this week's Cup of Crypto. If you like what you heard, please share and subscribe on Spotify and Anchor.fm slash Crypto Unstacked. Do engage with us through social media. I'll provide details in the show notes. And connect with me on Twitter at Les That's L-E-S-L-A-M-B-0. Would love to chat with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take care and see you at our next episode.